This is the CEO Series with Cara Moore on News Talk Radio, CJAD 800. Welcome to the CEO Series. I'm Carl Moore from McGill University. The CEO Series takes you inside our capstone MBA class at McGill. Each week, we sit down with some of Canada, indeed the world's top leaders, to discuss strategy, leadership, and today's pressing strategic issues. And some of the world's top leaders have spent time with us. Justin Trudeau, Mohamed Yunus, Nobel Peace Prize winner, and Alain Belmar, CEO Bombardier. This show gives you a thin, well, perhaps not so thin slice of the kind of thoughtful leader our McGill MBAs are exposed to. Today, I'm delighted to be in Geneva speaking with Yves Decor, the Director General of the International Committee of the Red Cross. Yves, thanks for joining us today. Thanks. Pleasure to be here. So, Yves, let's start off with what is the International Committee of the Red Cross and how is it different than the Red Cross we might think of in our minds? So I think when we think about the Red Cross, uh, um, and uh, we have to start to think about an organization which funded the Red Cross. That is the International Committee of the Red Cross. And at the time, the focus was on soldier, on war, right? Uh, our first name was the International Committee of Wounded Soldier. Okay. Uh, interesting, right? At the time, that was the idea. And uh, this organization has continued over time to be a Swiss organization in terms of its legal entity with an international mandate because our founder did something smart. They understood the action. Let's help the wounded people, for example. But they also understood quickly you needed a common grammar between state to somewhat respect each other when it came to war. And this is the Geneva Conventions. Okay. So we have these two elements. So we are an organization still today working with and focusing on war. So you will find us everywhere where there is war, on extreme situations. And differently, differently from the Canadian Red Cross or the American Red Cross, we will work only with professional. So I have 19,000 professionals working with me. And we will, of course, relate with every Red Cross around the world. Uh, where we are very similar, same emblem, same regulations, same principle, same grammar, if you want. Yeah. But then the Canadian Red Cross or the American Red Cross will be totally independent in their choices. And they are nationally focused. They are the auxiliary of state, and they will look at vulnerability in the country, where we will be global and intervening in places where the National Red Cross will not be in a position to be able to work. So the National Red Cross, uh, I know uh, Conrad Sobe, yeah. had on the show, runs a Canadian one. He does not report into you. He doesn't. Uh, uh, and what he does, though, he has to respect, in fact, the regulation that we have as an organization. So typically, and I hope not, but let's imagine we will have a Canada one day deciding to have two or three countries instead of one. Every new country will have a new Red Cross, and the Red Cross will be recognized by us, right? So okay. I think we would guarantee, if you want, the quality and the standards of, uh, of the organization. But yes, Conrad will, and, and luckily, and that's the power, will really have a total uh, evolution of power and they will it will lead the organization in Canada. When you think of a corporation, I worked for IBM for a number of years, there's a Canadian subsidiary, but it reports into yeah. head office. What's the advantage of having each country organization with the same mission, but independent? What's the advantage of that? Two advantages. Uh, one is it makes it truly, truly focused on the context. There is no discussions. Imagine in a world of today, right now, think yeah. about Iran and the US. There is no problem. The Iranian Red Crescent in that case, which is the similar of the cross, there is no body perceiving the Iranian Red Crescent in Iran as in fact connected with anything else than Iran run by Iranian people with an Iranian board, understanding extremely well the Iranian logic, at the same time being totally true to its mission, which is to be neutral principle and focusing on vulnerability. At the same time, you have an American Red Cross, totally, truly American, connected with the reality uh, and the difficulties of the US, and that's very powerful. So I think this model has proven to be a very powerful model in a world which we have known a world where you have a lot of fragmentation, 
polarization, so that's very powerful. That's one. B, it allows to connect with bottom-up. What we like is not so much the question of US, Canada, or Iran. What we're interested in is local branches, and that's the power. I mean, the local branches, the connections with people, with communities is, and you know that very well in your country, right? When you're in Quebec or when you are in Toronto, you don't care so much about Ottawa, right? Or maybe I'm wrong. What normally you care is about your community, about your cities, and that's yeah. the power. So people will don't care, I mean, to which Red Cross they, they are uh, somewhat uh, owning, but what they, what they care is, I'm the Red Cross. I feel that I have a personal connections with the missions, and that's the power. So... Uh, that's what we see around the world. In every single community, almost, you have a Red Cross, and that's that's the power. So that's how it works at the local level. And then you have an international Red Cross that I'm uh, running, which is then focusing much more on the, let's say, major complex interventions, which then require a global perspective, but also a global outreach. In business, we think about strategy more emerging from the community, from the local. Seems like the Red Cross spotted that a long time ago, that new approaches, innovation comes not so much from here in Geneva, but from the countries doing their things in their context. Totally confirmed. I think the importance is, and I think what we've seen is that the, the most um, interesting innovation, and I would say not such innovation for me, what is always interesting is the innovation which are practical which they can implement, mm. are coming from people themselves. I mean, the way people relate to us, the way people think about their own survival has changed dramatically over the 100 years. I mean, today when our team comes uh, and you know, are able to come across a, you know, a lot of different uh, armed people and arrive to a, a, a cities or a place which have been besieged for months in Syria, sit with the people, discuss the first, most of the time, the first humanitarian needs that people will tell us is in fact Wi-Fi. Why? Because people today are remarkably savvy in the way to connect, to find solutions, in the way to inform themselves, in the way to propose solutions, which is quite remarkable. So I think there is a dimension which come from always from the bottom up. At the same time, and this is maybe what is challenging, you need still to reflect also more and more about also top-down approach. And I think what is interesting is to balance both. Everything related to data, for example, to new technologies, to in fact also framing that in terms of ethics, in terms of questions, needs to come also at the global level. So I think what is interesting is to balance the radical new things coming from bottom, from your client, from the people yeah. you work with, and at the same time thinking, how will you negotiate, talk with states, for example? How are you thinking about ethics? How are you pushing some of the critical questions? Let's just step back for a minute. Interesting career you've had. Where are you from, and what did your family do as you were growing up for a living? I'm from Switzerland. I'm a classical Swiss male, okay. which means born in the German side. I'm educated in, uh, in the French-speaking uh, side. Classical education. Great family, though. A lot of trust. Uh, I have a, a father who is agronomist, and my mother is placologist. I have two sisters. Very lovely family. And then I decided when I was 18 years old to go which I thought at the time was really a, a massive uh, change. I went to Geneva, so I really went on the other side of Switzerland, which okay. was a French-speaking, but totally French-speaking, where I, I graduated in the university in political science. And then I made my career in journalism. I love journalism. At the time, I started with sport. Imagine that. I love, in fact, sport. I mean, did you study journalism at the no, university? No, there was nothing about, like that at the time. No, I studied political science and international relationship. 
how did you get into journalism? Because I was interested, you know, because A, I, when I was young to pay my study, I did a bit of sport journalism. I loved it. And then when I graduated, then they proposed me to be, um, uh, to start to go to go for a PhD. I started for a year, but there was an opening at the televisions and the televisions was very rare here, very, very well. I decided to go for it. I was surprised because I thought no chance and they picked me up. So then I spent five years at, uh, at televisions and then I left because I disagree with the political orientation of the television at the time. Was it a private uh, station? No, no, here in Switzerland, it's amazing. Still today, the televisions and the radio is owned by the state and they control the market. So they have a total monopoly on the news. Why did you disagree with them? What did you disagree about? Was that they were too left-wing, too right-wing? I think it's interesting. It's, it was the uh, end of the 80s, early 90s. We had, I, I think we were at the time of, I didn't realize, a golden time where we had time and energy and means. So I was a political journalist. I had an incredible time to make my research, right? And I remember my kind of old journalist, uh, you know, people around me saying, you know, you have to have minimum five sources. You have to work on your sources, whatever. And suddenly what happens was interesting. Almost from a day to another, there was a privatization in France, which of course impacted immediately the French-speaking space mm. in which we operate, and the Gulf War. It's interesting, where CNN started at the time. And I had a lot of questions about the way the Gulf War was, in fact, reported about. And the pressure, the, the mix of pressure, uh, private sectors, all that, mentally the very same people who told me, my senior people, you now you have to be very careful, just really work on the sources. The very same people, they were so threatened by the privatization. In two months, they changed their opinion, which I, at the time thought it was a terrible a cover of the Iraqi war which was really a huge problem for me because I was there was not two sources anymore there was just one sources we didn't hear the Iraqi we had no clue what was happening we just had one sources which was absolutely manipulated so my point was not left or right my questions was wow if we are not able to reflect a little bit how do we report with also some doubt about what we know or not or such something so important that the Gulf War, uh, then I had really a lot of questions about that. And I was too young to then st stay prisoner because it was obvious that speed and the people who were controlling the image would control television. That was so obvious, sadly. So I almost maybe, I was maybe leaving the, the end of a period where it was possible to control the image, to take the time, whatever. And uh, in a very short time, it was very clear for me that was gone. This is Carl Moore from McGill University, and we're sitting down with Yves Decaux, Director General of the International Committee of the Red Cross, coming up to discuss how things are evolving at the ICRC. I'm Carl Moore from McGill University, and you're listening to the CO Series. You're listening to the CEO Series with Carl Moore on News Talk Radio, CJAD 800. Hello again, I'm Carl Moore from McGill University, and you're listening to the CEO Series. We're speaking today in Geneva with Yves Decaux, Director General of the International Committee of the Red Cross. So it's quite interesting, the evolution of what you've seen. It would seem that the Red Cross tries to be a trusted voice in the world. Has it been able to maintain that, or is it kind of fraying at the edges because of the way the world's gone. I think we've by and large been able to maintain that, but we're also very, very aware that it's very fragile. And maybe one of the reasons is because we've decided not to be a voice. Because we've decided first and foremost to, and this is very different from any other organization, to be organization with leaderless. So we don't have ambassador. We have very good leaders. But we don't, if we want to have one leader who incarnates all the Red Cross. Okay. And it's very powerful because somewhat it allows us to be very truly universal. People, everybody can relate to an experience. 
So it's not about the voice, about an experience that they've come across with the Red Cross. And most of the experience, because of our volunteers, because of our staff, is in general a positive experience, right? So I think we've somewhat been able to manage this complexity of being an organization and being perceived in a very polarized world these days. Are you on that side of the equation or not? I mean, if I look at my own organization mm. today, globally, 70% of our operation are in the Muslim world. And we are called the Red Cross Think two minutes about mm. this complexity. But nobody will challenge us around that. Why? Because, in fact, we're not perceived as anti or pro-Muslim or Christian, whatever. We've been able to prove on a daily basis because of the way we operate, because we've decided to also manage risk differently in terms of leadership. My leaders on the ground have the full responsibility to decide about security, when they go, what type of negotiation they do. So I think the fact that we're able to do that on a daily basis, in fact, shows commitment, has shows interest, has also shown that we are able to live, in fact, our principle. Now, I'm also aware that can be changed in one minute. You know, we've seen that recently. I mean, you could have a, a scandal. You could have people not understanding who you are. You can be challenged. You can be wrong. Uh, you could have an organization decided to uh, that you are the wrong organization. I mean, I'm aware of the of the fragility of our situation. But what we've done right so far is not take it for granted our position, being very humble about who we are and how it works and continue to focus almost radically on what are the vulnerabilities of today and tomorrow. I think that's what we are all about. Sometimes, let's be honest, it doesn't work always, but trying to do that globally, that's really the focus. So the Red Crescent, the Red Cross, how are they associated? Same structure. You have in every single country of the world, you have a Red Cross or a Red Crescent. They can choose. Same principle, same structure, if they, and they are part of what we call the Red Cross, Red Crescent movement, yeah. which in fact brings all together all the Red Cross, Red Crescent. And then there's a federation helping them to do that. And we have the International Committee of the Red Cross, which is in fact the organization managing, if you want, and maneuvering when it comes to war. That's what it is. And don't forget also, we have this incredible responsibility to also develop the law of war. Mm. which means my organization doesn't operate only, but is also reflecting right now, for example, which is one of my serious focus, trying to negotiate with state what autonomous weapons means, mm. how far do we regulate them. In a few years, Carl, we will have weapons which will be like this little glass. So for your auditors, like think, think about a glass in front of you, take mm. the glass, look at your glass. In five, six years, seven years later, you will have this kind of little weapons being able to fly on their own without being remotely managed. That's a big difference with drone right now. Being able to arrive in the room like that and choose who among us should be taken care of, right? On their own, no remotely managed. What, using AI or something? Yeah, of course. We'll have enough intelligence to do that. And the key question for me is who? So for the first time, and we're very close to that, human ministry, for the first time, humankind, if you want, would have delegated the power to decide on killing, life and death, on to machines, right? Right now, machines are already used, let's be very clear, but they yeah. use based on sensor or based on remote management. So there's a man and, or woman sitting and deciding yeah, what happens. Yeah, exactly. Tomorrow, not, nothing like that. You would have sent weapons in a city, let's say, in the morning, send them, 5,000 of them, little one coming in, and let's imagine they receive a mission. Let's, I don't know, uh, they will have to kill every bold man, for example. Yeah. Imagine in a room where it's unclear, they will, mm. own, their own thing, which I find interesting, they will have been able to have interpretation. Yeah. So they will learn among each other how to do that. My question is, who regulate that? And normally it's state. 
I mean, all international public law, the law of war, which is possibly one of the most important, is are regulated by weapons. And this is one of our major functions. And it's a very complex function right now in a, in a time where state don't produce any more consensus on global issues. And that's very complicated right now. It would seem like military people should decide in a war who they should kill. But don't kill children, don't kill babies would be just... Seems like a non, non-thought. Carl, absolutely agree with you. That's exactly what the international uh, law, international human law says, the law of war, says uh, very carefully about uh, make a clear distinction between military and civilian, both people but also objective. Right? Yeah. Don't shoot at a hospital. Right? You can shoot at maybe a ware- military warehouse but not a hospital. When a military, even a military or an enemy is wounded, this person's has to be protected. Yeah. When he or she is prisoner needs to be protected. Yeah. Don't touch, respect, don't rape. Don't, I mean, all these kind of things are yeah. very important. The problem is, of course, we're living in a world that how does that apply when you have a cyber attack? Yeah. How is your data, is the McGill data, what is it? Is it military or civilian? You'd say it's absolutely civilian. But let's imagine you have one or two program of McGill. I don't know if that's the case. Yeah. Who maybe are used to, I don't know, help defense uh, structure or, or defense startup, whatever, yeah. oh, you can start to argue. And of course, the complexity is exactly to navigate. That's what the law is very clear. The problem is to n- agree on the interpretation of the law when it starts to be on cyber, artificial intelligence, mm-hmm. when sometimes civilians are fighting themselves. That's all the questions. And that's so important then to discuss. That's what customary law is mm-hmm. about, right? When you are constantly negotiating. So you immediately understand that part of my job is not just to run an operation, but it's also to organize, of course, the outreach, the diplomatic negotiation constantly with all the state of the world right now. You were in journalism for a number of years. How in the world did you end up doing what you're doing today? Because as for a journalist, I was and I am still curious about people. And a journalist is a great place to observe people, to learn from people. Working at the, at the Red Cross is, has the beauty of learning much more from people because you're in contact with people in crisis most of the time. Mm. And people in crisis are, are quite amazing. Sometimes they're very difficult, sometimes they're very tough, but most of the time they're very generous. I had the chance to really also try to understand what's happening in our world. There's nothing better than to work at the Red Cross because you are at the core of what's happening and you also are very humble. You realize that most of the case, what you think is strategic is very rarely strategic. Most of the time it's about people. It's about sometimes very basic issues, but it's good to be there. And what is very powerful is, and this is a big difference with journalists, is you can contribute. Journalists you can also do, but as um, Red Cross members, you can really contribute. And sometimes you can make a difference. I'm Carl Moore from McGill University, and you're listening to the CEO series. Today, I'm in Geneva, sitting down with Yves Decor, Director General of the International Committee of the Red Cross. Up next, we'll talk some more about leadership in humanitarian aid. You're listening to the CEO series. This is the CEO series with Carl Moore on News Talk Radio, CJAD 800. Hello again, I'm Carl Moore from McGill University, and you're listening to the CO Series. We're speaking today in Geneva with Yves Decor, Director General of the International Committee of the Red Cross. What percentage of time are you out of your office and in the field? 
I'm spending 10% of my time in my office, oh, well, uh, yeah. but a lot of time talking and, and going to, uh, that's one of the things I always do. I never, I, I have to do meetings in my office, but I also do a lot of meetings in the office of my colleagues. Always a better way. As a, as a CEO, as a director general, I always find it useful to go to people. Okay. Uh, always interesting um, to see where people are sitting. By the way, it's also a good way because it allows you to decide when you want to leave. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but most likely, no, depends on the period of time. Overall, on a year, is a kind of 40% traveling 60% Geneva but it could could shift right now the last six months it was the country 65% traveling and, and 35% here so you're often out where there's just it's war it's incredibly difficult mm-hmm. how do you deal with that emotionally because it just seems like you just be the stress the emotion of it would be yeah, overwhelming but, uh, yeah but for, for me it's much more easy than for any of my colleagues because most of the time when I'm going I'm going in places uh, for a few days and I'm going with the team. The team is there. They know very well. Okay. It's easy for me. I think what is more complex and where I have a lot of respect for people is that when they stay, what is difficult in our job is not to go in or to leave. What is difficult is to stay. And what is difficult is to stay in very difficult places where not just the security is complicated, but where people are suffering. I must say, if there's one thing which... Sometimes, um, I don't know if it put me under pressure, but I sometimes I'm reflecting in a way, is when you go into places that you know well, kind of five years later, yeah. and the things have not improved, they are worsened. Yeah. And that's difficult to see. You know, I know very well South Sudan, for example. Yeah. I mean, you just go South Sudan and you say, for the people, it's worse. That's difficult to see. That's complicated. When you are in an emergency perspective, it's tough, but it's clear. Your mission is clear. It's much more challenging. And this is the world in which we operate is emergency last in our world, right? In South Sudan, in Syria, in Ukraine, in Myanmar, uh, in Afghanistan. These are emergency which last, and that makes life, our life, but also life of the people, and sometimes our own connections more complex. But someone who's spending months in the South Sudan, or maybe a couple of years, they're doing a marvelous thing, but at the end of it, they must be shattered by just what they've seen. How do you help those people? They are, uh, and I think we do recognize that as a person, you never ever um, go. You you can't. You I mean, we expect the people to connect, so we, you can't be not influenced by what you see. Yeah. Um, we we are careful. A we are recruiting people, and I think that's one of our job. Also, we are recruiting people who are on purpose, not Rambo. We're very careful. Yeah. We don't want that. We don't want neither people who are. It happens also completely afraid, and we want people who are highly self-aware. If I look at the stress I'm receiving as, as a CEO, all the st- our stress report, if you want, still today, the majority of stress reports are not related to war. They are related to the team, to my teammates, yeah. to my bosses. Yeah. So it's always interesting. So somewhat, you can manage most of the time incidents or issues. It's difficult, but you can. What is more difficult is to spend a year, you know, in a places which is rather remote with a team and colleagues that you would maybe not have invited for a coffee. That's sometimes required quite a bit. Sometimes it works very well, but sometimes it's complicated. So we've worked much more around that questions. How do we allow manager and, uh, you know, people to try to understand that kind of question? How do you manage diversity, including diversity of opinion and thinking and resistance and resilience in front of issues. Now, of course, we have also psychological services uh, to support people. We have a very, very complex but powerful network of ombudsperson, for example, in order to allow people, if they don't want maybe to ask a psychological service because maybe they don't want, they can talk to an ombudsperson. There's a way to do formal but also informal system to support the people. Has management changed what a boss should be in the last 10 or 15 years in your mind? Is that oh, a yes. different role? 
yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, I think uh, for a long time, if I look in my world, for a long time, uh, there was at least two or three issues. One is manager, when they came in humanitarian affair, they were willing and, and wanted to manage action, you know, somewhat um, task. I want to organize, you know, a rapid response to this flood or to this issue, right? And over time, we clearly shifted and says, and I want you also to manage your people. Yeah, and the risk is, especially when you work on survival and short term, the risk is all the focus is on the task, is on the vulnerability, yeah. but not on your team, right? So it, it took us a lot of time to rebalance that. So yeah, absolutely, you can be a very, very strong you know, task management. Uh, you have to operate a rapid deployment, but I want you to also be a, a very strong people management. And I realized that the people management is something complex. We always say we do people management, but yeah. creating the right incentive, allowing the people to do their job well. So that's one thing which has changed. The other things which has changed is I think people are more demanding in general, which is great. So if I look at my own organization, it's a much more global organization today. Today we are 145 nationalities. Average age has changed. In my organization is 41 year okay. people. So they come with expertise, they're very clear. So before you could say to newcomer, don't worry, this is how it happens in the ICSC and yeah. people will shut down. This time is over. I mean, the younger generation will say, I don't buy it, you know. I've worked already in this organization, this one, they did much better or, or our IT system was much better. So people are expecting the organization to provide them with the right platform, with the right, but also the right management. I found that rather interesting. And of course you hear different voices. You, ha you hear much more diversity today around that. So that's interesting. And last but not least, and this is more not just for my organization, but I would say it's in general for organization uh, across the board. I realized that we're living in a world where A, you need to be more explicit about what are the practice where you don't want any deviances. So I want the same practice everywhere, even if you are the head of Afghanistan and you're the head of, of Yemen and you're the head of South Sudan or Somalia. And where are the space where you have full authority and you can do whatever you want? So I think at the time it was implicit. Now we need to be more explicit mm. about what are the places where I'm expecting you to really do the same way. That's interesting. And the other things which is changing is, and this is more about learning and development, I start to see that the classical MBA and the classical learning we did for a manager doesn't work anymore. What people want and what people need is a recognition that leaders of today and tomorrow, what is expected is that they don't reproduce what we did, which was a long time the MBA, and, you know, yeah, case yeah. study, do well, do a bit better than what I did. That doesn't work anymore. They confronted with complex issues. If I look at my world, today, uh, a manager of the, my organization will be confronted with so many more complex issues than I did at the, at the same age. I mean, no question. So there's no way that I'm expecting him or her to reproduce what I did. So I think it's also an interesting moment as global leaders, as I am, to somewhat let go, to somewhat being clear about what are the frame in which you operate, but also recognizing that there are some practice that they are doing or emerging, which are very different from my own. So you have to be flexible and agile. You have to be flexible and agile, but also maybe you have to reflect about the relevance. I think it's always the relevance of, the, of what type of management are you doing and really reflect. I still find manager of my generation sometimes a little bit static about what is right, what is wrong. Yeah. And I think we should be clear. Of course, the way to do accounting, of course, the way to do very specific uh, practice on, on medical care, for example, needs to be very clearly put, put it. 
But there's a lot of way in terms of reflecting about how do we engage, reflect about stakeholders, about how do we communicate, how do we lead by behind, maybe not in front, about what, you know, how do we integrate a very, very diverse style of management and leadership. You manage around the world, and it's probably helpful being Swiss because you're already German and French speaking and speaking English. You already have different worlds, but do you manage differently in Africa than Asia than the U.S. and Canada in some way? It's interesting, not so much in terms of management, but you are engaging and connecting very differently. And it's interesting because that's what I'm expecting from my leaders uh, in, on, on the ground or, or in, in context, is that they are able on one hand to be very clear about what are the value, if you want, in terms of management of the people that the organization have. So we, we are very clear about gender parity. From, so I'm expecting my leaders and my manager to completely respect that, whatever, whoever, wherever they are. Yeah. At the same time, I'm expecting them to be smart about their ability to connect, to represent the organization, and to be very careful about uh, what happens. I'm an organization which depends, we are 19 people today, 19,000 people. And each of us, whatever our responsibility, can have a huge impact on our reputation. So typically, one thing I would very carefully do is I don't want you to wear, in fact, uh, sunglasses. Because sunglasses in a checkpoint or with people are very bad for, in fact, creating the minimum of trust, whatever, as yeah, an example. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I want my manager to be able to have also that level of attention, if you want, which is very tactical, but also understand in which dynamic they are and also being aware that we are living in a world where you can be influenced by the local custom, but at the same time, we might be aware, immediately at the same time, the community might be aware by suddenly something which is global. And that's also one of the complexity we've seen. I th mm. I'm thinking about Nigeria, for example. Recently, we had, we had serious issues about uh, dealing with one of the group in Nigeria. And one of the issues was because the group, the group was splitting and was influenced not just by the local reality, but by the global reality. Yeah. And as a manager, you need to be able to constantly understand that. So it's not so much the management, but it's much more um, the ability to connect, including with your own staff. This is Carl Moore from Eagle University. We're sitting down in Geneva with Yves Decor, Director General of the International Committee of the Red Cross. Coming up, we'll talk about whether he's an introvert or an extrovert. You're listening to the CO Series. You're listening to the CEO Series with Carl Moore on News Talk Radio, CJAD 800. Hello again, I'm Carl Moore from McGill University, and you're listening to the CEO Series. We're speaking today in Geneva with Yves Decau, Director General of the International Committee of the Red Cross. Yves, the best piece of advice you've ever received? Oh, listen. Just take the time to listen. And ask questions. If you ask more than three questions, you own the conversation. Do you think as, as a, the CEO and as a senior leader that you listen more than you used to? I think I'm a good listener. And one of the reasons that has brought me to this position, even if people don't realize, is because I'm a good listener and I enjoy asking questions. But yes, I had to be even more. I think we live in a world where it's not enough only to listen, but you're living in a world where you need to be able to integrate some of the conclusions of the, of the yeah. listening. Absolutely, yeah. Are you an introvert or an extrovert? I'm an extrovert. So do you take extrovert breaks if you've been in by your office too long by yourself? Do you go talk to people? Yes, absolutely. I, I, I really like it. How do you encourage introverts, though? I do have a lot of introverts around me. My executive team is 63% women and and uh, 30, uh, what, 7% of men. And we were always 50% minimum. And it was interesting because bringing gender parity, really be serious about that, has also helped us to bring also the exact a type of very different people around the table. So introvert, uh, some of them more control freak or different. And I think 
in an organization of a two billion organization, 19,000 people present around the world, I need at the executive level to have different way to think the same reality, very important. So the difference between extrovert or introvert, for example, is extremely important. It's not the only one, but it's an important. Uh, so I think I absolutely leave the space to the people then to have their own way to energy. So typically in the executive team, I have at least two people who are rather introvert. They're very clear about their need <laughs> and, and what, what is important for them to be able to perform. I mean, the way we organize our executive team, they need some moment for them. Uh, there are moments where it will be too much for them, but they are able to express that. I, I value that enormously. The, the senior women in the, uh, the 60s would have lear largely learned about leadership from men because that was who they would see. The women in their 40s would have more leaders. And my students in their 20s, half the leadership or more is women, is, is on your board. Is women's leadership evolving in your experience at all? Yeah, it is, absolutely, absolutely. It is, uh, that's very clear. And I would say, at least I see two things evolving. One is you do have, which is normal, because you have more diversity, you have very different style of leadership. I mean, I'm still of the generation who saw women with one type yeah. of leadership, uh, somewhat framed by the organization. Yeah. And of course, by the fact that the organization was led mainly by male, so, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say there was a male way to do leadership, but the, the framing was very clear. And there was yeah. only one way to do it somewhat, right? And, and women were always paying the price by working more. That was very clear. That was always the kind of, that was the minimum price. Yeah. Um, today, you have a lot of different style of women leaders uh, in their way, in their interactions, in the way they do that, uh, which I found also interesting. Uh, and the first impact, it has allowed men to be different. That's the first element. Okay. For me, the first element, it has a low, more leadership style emerging in men. It's interesting because also men are very similar in a way. That yeah. they, without talking about it, but normally the dominant male yeah. uh, you know, somewhat got a very clear path of what is what works, what doesn't. I see, I've seen that changing, absolutely. So that's the first element. So okay. it creates a different set of leadership, including for men, which is interesting. The second point which I've seen is clearly that women are, are interacting and connecting uh, with uh, their own staff and people very differently. The quality of connections, the quality of information that they're bringing at the executive level for them is changed. So it means you have, as a team, you suddenly have more diverse information, more diverse data, and I like that very much. So I'm very careful not just to go on data, but also anecdotes on narrative, because what comes from my female leaders, if you want, is on the very same issue, sometimes a very different perspective. And I value that enormously. Last but not least, one thing I've not seen changing so far, and that's still a things uh, which needs to change, women in general, including the new generation, we'll see then, they still um, prepare themselves kind of 20, 30% more than men systematically, whoever they are. They read more. They bluff less. Doesn't mean it's apply everywhere, but there's something I see them still working more than men in general. So for a woman, top leader position, it's still today in terms of pure ergonomy, I would say, in terms of hours, yeah. in terms of preparation, it seems for me most of the time more complex and more, let's say, yeah, more hours that for men. They may be doing a better job, so maybe men should prepare more. Maybe women should prepare a little less. So both sides have something to learn, maybe. Yeah, maybe. Or a very different way to do a good job. I think it's okay. I think we live in a time where if I look at my own uh, life, I would not be in a position to produce what I produce if I would have to work 20% more in preparation. No way. Right? So my expectation of my job at my level is yeah. that I'm able to process a lot of things very fast. Mm -hmm. What I found interesting, though, what you're saying is maybe then it should reflect about 
uh, our systems, right? And do we have to treat that many subjects? And maybe we need to be more clear that not all a subject needs to come at the top level. Uh, and I think this is something which in a new world where everything is connected and very fast, one thing as a thing I see coming up again is, and I think we need to discuss that much more clearly, is the evolution of power. Despite of the fact we talk a lot about that, I have a tendency to see the world of today has brought a lot of issues again at the core of uh, the executive team. How do you stay in good shape physically and mentally? Do you go to the gym? What do you do to keep in shape? I walk. So I'm too lazy, or maybe my nature is the following one, is I'm too lazy to have two more hours you know, on the, in the morning, on the evening. That's really, I'm, I just want to do something. I want to drink a glass. Yeah. I want to read something or to enjoy life. So what I've decided, and it works well for me, is I'm, I've integrating walking in all my practice. So really, it means every, every occasion I have, including the, during the day, get outside of my office, connect with the people. Uh, I don't have a driver. I would have no problem to walk as much as I can. So everything which is a kind of a 20, 30 minute, I will walk and that has been very useful um, in my own way and I like walking so I have really learned to do that and the other things this is more personal I do uh, I fast from time to time and that's very useful for me because I don't know how it is for you Carl but for me as a leader I'm invited a lot of dinners and Mm. and lunch and whatever so what I do is I don't do big fasting but I fast um, one day a week something like that. It is very useful for me. Do you have children along with I, I have three daughters, yes. When they were small, yeah. how did you manage work-life integration? We did one thing well, is when our first daughter came in, I stopped working for six months. And it was a very smart investment in my own maybe confidence about being a father with my daughters, but also with the family, with my wife. I think it was something very useful. So I've been very careful about that. I didn't do that always very well, but that was very a good base if you want to start with. What I've been very careful also is to maintain very clearly a control on my agenda. So throughout my career, I always have say no to jobs where my agenda was not controlled. So I was proposed within the retros at the time for him a very, very, when, before I became director general, I would, you know, operation director for him a very good or a position like that, or regional director, which was very uh, attractive at the time. But I realized that the agenda was, could be dominated by the event. So if you're a regional, you know, director for Asia, and there is a major challenge in Asia, uh, whatever, you have to go. I mean, just no question, that's your yeah. job. You have to take care of that, Wh- whatever. And I realized that for my family, the unpredictability of, sorry, we were due to go on holidays, but I'm gone. Uh, that's very difficult to swallow. Where, whereas, of course, I've, wor- I'm, I've worked hard and I'm still working hard, but someone is much more predictable. And this point two, very basic, is I'm still doing laundry and things like that, you know, which is good. So it brings you uh, close to reality. This has been the CO Series. Eve, thanks for joining us today. This show is produced by Marie Lebras. We'd like to thank our technical producer, Brian Kellauser. Thank you for tuning in to the CO Series. À la prochaine. For more info and full interviews, go to cjad.com now.